0: A great interview we had today, James, with, with Mike. I really, really appreciated that. You know, you and I have talked a lot about sort of tangentially about how do you build up an ISO for, for sale. But here we have somebody who just, you know, took on a very um, well known ISO yeah. and, and, and managed it for a really
1: well. You know, and and I think, Patty, this is also an interview a lot of the industry has been waiting for. I mean, let's face it, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Beyond and Bob Carr taking that Mm -hmm. from Heartland Days and then building it. And then, wait, it all comes full circle and it goes back to, you know, to Heartland per se, right, obviously with the parent company involved. but
0: Right, but that is so cool the way it all came full circle.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to us, it's cool. Obviously, a lot of people had you know issues with it and things of yes. that nature. And so we talk about all that today with Michael Peters. Um, and then um, I talk about the power of telemarketing. And I promise you, you'll be interested because I layer it with this whole verticalization idea and talk about the, mm-hmm. the power of selling remote, what might even be a better way to put it. Um, we talk about that. And then, Patty, I love the insiders today. Talk about that a little bit.
0: About the uh, Capital One um, Discover um, acquisition or acquisition of Discover by Capital One and what that might or might not mean for competition and also for a future Durban amendment.
1: Yeah, yeah, good stuff with that. So uh, this episode uh, is sponsored by Nativia, which we're gonna get to that in a little bit. We actually have uh, Vlad Sadovsky from the TV giving a special announcement for us here in a little bit. Um, but I also wanna mention that uh, Michael Peters uh, is not in any way, uh, you know, sponsor, consulting, client, anything like that. This is just a fantastic interview with a longtime industry veteran. So with that being said, let's dive in. Welcome to the Merchant
2: Sales Podcast.
1: Hey everybody, Patty and I are here today with Michael Peters, longtime industry veteran, consultant, played a lot of different roles. Uh, most recently uh, took the role over from uh, Bob Carr, as CEO at Beyond, and then went through a process there. So we're gonna kind of talk about this journey of that payments executive coming in, working with entrepreneurs, moving towards exit, scaling ISOs, all this exciting stuff. Um, but before we dive into that, Michael, love to hear a little bit more of your story. Um, can you give us that kind of high level overview, maybe for those that didn't hear the previous podcast, how did you get into this crazy industry? And tell us a little bit about your journey so far.
3: Sure, thanks, Patty James. Thanks for having me again. Um,
1: sure. it's been a while, right? It's been. It, a, it has been. It's
3: been uh, about sixteen months, seventeen so there's months. Plenty
0: of people that are listening, James, that probably did
3: not hear him the last Absolutely. time. Absolutely, yeah. Here. Okay. So, um, my journey's uh, an interesting one. I started back in the early '80s in the uh, credit collections, um, receivables management business. Uh-huh. Spent a solid sixteen years there. And quite by accident, got into the merchant business, like many of us, in 01, right after 9-11. I had um, separated from my partners in the collections business and had a non-compete. So I said, you know what, I need to try something different. I answered an ad for a district sales manager in West Orange, New Jersey, for Chase Merchant Services. I knew nothing about merchant services. Um, I knew how to use a credit card. That was about it. Um, went into the organization in um, right after 9/11 in 01. Learned the business from the ground up. Spent as much time as I could in the field, traveling around to sales folks, um, understanding what they went through daily, and, and growing that business to the point where eventually, over the years, I took over larger sales organizations within Chase, Chase Payment Tech. Uh, when that um, when that ride ended with the bank taking over um, the, their merchant program, I separated from Chase. Payment tech at the time, and jumped into another phase of my career, and that was the the ISO business uh, for Trans first. Mm-hmm. Once again, I knew nothing of what an ISO was. Um, learned that business under the um, under the executive team within Trans first at the time. Spent a solid nine and a half, almost ten years there, growing that business, learning it inside and out. The one thing I'll tell you is, I learned more in those nine and a half years about the merchant business. Um, than I've learned you know, in the prior you know, six or seven that I was in. Um, so uh, that, that took me then to an acquisition with Thesis. Thesis acquired us uh, at the transverse level, the executive team left. I was sort of like the uh, last man standing, mm-hmm. and um, they, um, uh, they asked me to run the, the merchant group after the CEO left. I helped them through a transition uh, for about 18 months with the global acquisition. And then i set out for a couple of years did a little consulting work on a few um, projects for some folks on a non-compete and during that time frame i met bob carr um he and i had, had several lunches um, prior to me coming aboard in july of 22 and uh, we discussed what you know what that might look like going forward and uh in july of 22 i stepped in as the ceo to run the organization for bob that's great awesome great. well
1: yeah. so so we're going to talk today about this idea of, of scaling an ISO or scaling a payments organization for exit and you know the beginning of that journey traditionally starts with a, an entrepreneur it starts with you know somebody coming in and saying hey I want to create something and I think you know Michael you'd agree with me that this industry is just a fantastic industry for these entrepreneurs, you know, to come in and, and really build something and, and innovate. It's um, an
0: industry of entrepreneurs. It is it,
1: really is, it is. And, you know, as we think about that though, I'm curious, Michael, what you would see in terms of, what are some of the challenges that you see entrepreneurs facing um, as they get these businesses and try to start something in the payment space? Um, great first question. So it it's
3: an industry with very little barrier to entry. Um, mm-hmm. you wake up one day and you find out that you're out of a job you're working for one of the big payment processors or you're working for you know an organization that's decided to sell and you say you know what I don't want to be part of a big organization I get a business card I start calling and I hang a shingle out myself and I'm in business right. uh, so it is it is clearly an entrepreneur's dream and that's how most of these companies have started over the years um, well before I actually got into the business mm-hmm. some of the some of the things I think they need to focus on are um, undercapitalization. A lot of entrepreneurs run into this business not having enough resources or capital behind them. Some of them can make it based on sales and, and growing sales, but if there's not enough uh, capitalization behind them, they're going to struggle and they're going to get to a point where um, I believe they're going to need to look within the organization to find out what the next what the next direction is for them. You now, setting the proper expectations, I got to be honest with you. I've seen so many organizations uh, as I manage the ISO space and even working with uh, get beyond the expectations get set based on the founder's vision or the, the people that started the business. And sometimes those, those expectations are unrealistic. And and that's a very bold statement for me to make, but they have these grandiose ideas that they're going to be next heartland payments. They're going to be the next first date or the next global payments. And they put a lot of extra resources and costs into it. And uh, quite frankly, I think that's the pitfall that they they run into. Um, Many entrepreneurs jump into the game um, for a second round. Uh, I just got finished working for uh, the chairman who was very successful in the first round. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that the second act is going to be better than the first act, Mm -hmm. especially when the industry changes and you're up against things like a pandemic. You're up against a thing where the competition has changed dramatically. So I would tell you that um, those challenges are the things that have to be very mindful and top of mind for an entrepreneur when they jump in.
0: Yeah, sure. So what would you say then, you know, to the entrepreneur who's listening, you know, thinking, okay, I've been building up this business. I'd like to exit maybe in the next three to five years. What would you Um, say to them in terms of how to best position their companies for an exit?
3: Uh, I would tell you that the very first thing that they have to do is they have to have a full command of their sales model and um, what's driving the revenues. While a vision is fantastic, you can get caught up in the vision and forget about the basic blocking and tackling. And um, nothing happens until you sell something. So the infrastructure behind that sales organization isn't necessarily always needed. Um, We don't need a credit person. We don't need... An operations person we don't need lawyers we don't need all these folks to manage the the back end until we start to sell something right. and i would tell you that as an entrepreneur if you're an entrepreneur looking at the the business um focus on sales revenue generation don't lose sight of your dream don't lose sight of your vision but focus on sales and what drives um keeping the lights on it's that simple mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing I, one thing I find so interesting, and, and Michael, you and I had this conversation privately a uh, a little while ago. We were talking about this idea of you know bringing in the outside CEO, mm-hmm. and I always have found it so intriguing because for me personally, I love doing that. You know, I have these different businesses, and each of them has somebody that runs it. And I'm like, you know, when I get ready to start a business, I'm already thinking who's going to be the CEO of it as soon as I'm done being the CEO, right? So, but un- unfortunately, I think a lot of, of entrepreneurs who maybe don't have actually that skill set to take their business to the highest level that it could go. They struggle with that to like, Oh man, I've got to release control. I got to bring somebody else in. You just got done with this transition. Um, what would you tell the entrepreneur about this? When When is the right time to start thinking about bringing somebody else in to run the business and scale it? And what are the considerations they should be you know, thinking through? Um, I would tell any entrepreneur that's bringing somebody in from the outside,
3: whether it be a corporate person or another person that's that's an entrepreneur themselves. You need to answer this and be comfortable with this one question. Have I taken the company as far as I possibly can? And is it ready? Am I ready to step aside fully and let, um, let somebody else drive the health and the future of the company? Um, Doesn't mean that they have to step away from their vision. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that they have to lose touch of the business. Sure. But there's a fine line between soul search, whether or not, they um, they can relinquish the next phase, and this is their baby. I don't know, whether it's right. act one, act two, sure. act three, this is their baby. And, and um, you're stepping in and telling you now, all right, you've got them to to kindergarten. Now you're going to teach them from kindergarten to to high school on how to be a good adolescent or how to be a good company. And it's hard for some people to let go. Uh-huh. It really yeah, is.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. Do you you know do you find like you know one of the things I've always found is understanding, you know, being able to stay in your lane, right? Like as an entrepreneur understanding, you know, so for me, I'm like, well, you know, I start a business up, you know, look at like something like maybe Isoamp. you know, we have a statement analysis company and it's like, well, you know, I have payments expertise and I have huge distribution, you know, through influence and all of that. So I'm like, okay. So I bring that to the table. We use the payments expertise to build the system out, but then it's like, you know, I understand where my lane is and my lane is about payments expertise and distribution. Right. So if I get somebody else in to run operations and, you know, to make sure we're having everybody managing everybody, hiring the right people, all of that, you know, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, they they don't understand what their role is. You know, it's like, like, you, I love what you just said. You don't lose your vision. You know, like you still have a role to play potentially, depending on your, your right. you know definition of success, but you still have a role to play. Do you find that entrepreneurs kind of get lost in that and they, they don't know what to do with themselves either? Like, do they go all in or do they go all out and they don't know what to do? Yeah, I think there's a combination. You know, listen, my experience in, in working within
3: an environment of an entrepreneur who, quite frankly, many people in the industry view as, um, as a stalwart and an icon of the business. Right. I mean, Bob, Bob was around for a very long period of time. Yeah. So here I am stepping in, coming from corporate America, and there's big shoes to fill. A lot yeah. of people followed Bob through um, through the pastures to, to, to very green pastures for the first go around. And, uh, you know, act two... With the intention was to get there, um, get there the same way. Um, so it is extremely hard for them to step away, but I think the person that comes in, at least I, I did this, leverage them and leverage what they have been able to do. Do not forget what got them there. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I never lost sight of the fact of what, what, um, Bob and the team did to get them to that first five and a half years. Right, right. You have to clearly be, um, You have to clearly be able to put your own vision and own slant on things and it comes down to the four p's for me it's it's push pull pause and pivot i mean you got to push your own agenda and and remind everybody why you're here and what you're looking to get accomplished you were brought in for a reason you weren't brought in to mirror exactly what the entrepreneur did if you if you were doing that um what's the purpose what's the point Pulling, pull the people with you. You know, sometimes you got to drag them into the process because they're so used to doing things in a way that, well, we, we've done that before. Well, okay, yeah. now it's time to, maybe it worked before. Now it's time to change. I'm here for a reason. Um, pause. Sometimes listening and learning is more powerful than just driving your own agenda. Find out where everybody's head's at. It takes a good solid three or four months to, to determine that, and I would I would tell whoever is taking over for an entrepreneur, if they have an executive staff or a team in place, find your find your consigliere, as I say it, find the person in there that is going to be the person that is going to help you not only navigate around the company, but knows that entrepreneur well and can help you um, get your points across sometimes mm-hmm. and and become that pivotal person and i found that in um in our head legal counsel in the organization she did a phenomenal job um at times when bob and i um didn't agree that she was the voice of reason and then and then there there always has to be that pivot Um, your way your way cannot always be the only way right Um, and i do believe that entrepreneurs in this case you know having having worked with bob it's a lot easier sometimes when the masses agree with your change and the entrepreneur says, all right, I get it. If it's Mm -hmm. just you sitting in, sometimes it's hard to get that point across and now it's just you and that person sort of butting heads as where if the the group agrees um, and that group was quite frankly dedicated to that entrepreneur for so many years, I think you'll find it an easier transition. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a question that I think you touched on a little bit, Mike, but maybe you can dive a little bit deeper into this in terms of when you took over as CEO of Beyond, what were some of the challenges you faced and how did you overcome those challenges? I know you talked about having your consigliere, that obviously is important, but I'm sure there were other challenges and and other steps that you took to overcome.
3: You know, every company is going to have um, different challenges. In my particular case, um, walking in, I spent a couple of months helping Bob on a consultative basis before I took over focus on sales. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I had a little bit more time at focusing on some other areas and diving into the business because when I when I did dive in. Um, and my background is sales. I mean, I'm, I would classify myself if I'm a CEO, I'm a sales CEO versus an IT CEO or a finance CEO. So I surrounded myself with the right people within those other areas that, that I'm not strong in. It was easy for me to focus on sales, but um, getting um, my arms around the other areas of the business did in fact take my eye off the ball a little bit from a sales perspective mm-hmm. because some of those other areas needed much more focus. And I would consider myself more of an operational. I learned this from my first days, get into the numbers, inspect what you expect and make sure that everyone's held accountable, whether it's the IT person for a budget or whether it's sales from, uh, from a sales budget, everybody has to be accountable to driving an expectation and a revenue number or a sales number. And, um, and I would tell you that if I, um, if I th- I wouldn't say if I failed, if if I could go back and redo things again, Mm -hmm. I would have made some quicker decisions in the operational side of the business so that I could have focused much more attention on the sales side. Mm -hmm. But, you know, coming in, we also knew that there was two plans. There was a plan A and a plan B. Mm
2: -hmm. And
3: um, I think you have to have that um, in the back of your mind. In our case, Bob and I had numerous conversations. Plan A was to continue to grow the business and potentially take it to the next level. Um, and if that couldn't be done in a very short uh, period of time and figure that out, the plan B was obviously to position it for sale. Um, you know, your plan B is not revert back to plan A. Once, right. you're, once you're committed to one right. plan, you, you, yeah. you got to stick to it. So yeah. once, you, once you realize that plan A isn't working, You've got to be able to commit and you've got to be able to do it fairly quickly on whatever your plan B is, whether it's sales or or investing in the business.
0: That's why there needs to be a plan B. Yeah, Um, exactly. So, so, okay, so what went along in the process? At what point um, did you start looking for a buyer? And what led you to decide that it was the right strategic move?
3: Um, you know, without getting into getting into the, the minutiae of the details, um, the industry's changed dramatically. What sure. what in fact worked for um, Bob and Hartland payments in the past um, was not necessarily working as easily as it, yeah. as it was in prior years. There's a lot more competition. There's a lot more of everything. Along the way, and a little thing called a pandemic that threw them a curveball for 24 months. So they were up against a lot of different challenges in, in the business. So it was about six, seven months into the business where I recognized that. Um, and I, I had oh, wow. a conversation with Bob. Listen, it, we have to do one or two things. We have to raise capital and we have to raise it quickly in order to take us to the next level. Or we're going to have to start to think about what this looks like from a sale perspective. Uh Um, And, um, you know, raising capital in today's market is not easy in a a company that's growing. Um, And the the PE firms and and investment bankers are much more savvy. So when you start to position a business, you better make sure you have a good command of your numbers, which we did. And I had a good group behind me that focused our attentions on um, driving it. So the determination was about six or eight months into it, if we're not going to raise capital, we tried it on our own, um, that that took us to about month 12. And at that point, we realized we're not going to be able to raise the capital. It's time for us to position the organization for sale and then ultimately uh, finding the right buyer, which I believe we're going to get into at some point.
1: Yeah, you know, I, that's actually my next question, but I, I have another one I just I have to ask as a follow up because I'm just curious a lot of the things you just said and again without you know i don't want you to share anything obviously too you know too detailed whatever but i'm just kind of curious like your experience with beyond how has that impacted your view of feed on the street sales teams in our industry in general given the new reality and the new context of kind of integrated payments and right all these challenges that we're facing what are your feelings on having a feed on the street sales team in today's market what are the challenges
3: Um, I'm I'm going to tell you, my comment here is going to be prefaced by this. There's going to be several dozen entrepreneurs that have feet on the street models that are are much smaller than we were at Beyond and are starting out, and they're going to completely disagree with this. Um, In my lifetime, I said this in the last podcast, in my lifetime, we're never going to see the feet on the street model go away. There's always going to be a need for that trusted advisor, that person that's going to knock on the door, the local pizza parlor or retailer. So it's not going to go away. And there's always going to be this need for the smaller ISO, the smaller entrepreneur. Um, Where it starts to separate is when you start to get very, very big and you start to think about other aspects of the business. Software as a service. How do I tie myself into a VAR and or, or something of that nature? I just got a helper here. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> uh, he has a touch on, at least. He did. I, I, any, how do you tie your um, your your business into growing? So those that are out there that are running with small organizations that have the desire to get them to the next level, I absolutely agree that um, there's an opportunity, but. It's not easy Um, and even the big organizations, the global payments of the world and the others that have big sales organizations, they're finding it difficult to continue to maintain Mm -hmm. the the growth of the business just by feet on the street. Yeah, yeah, so my helper's not going away, guys. So you're gonna have to. Gonna no, have it's
1: kind funny, actually. Yeah, for those that are listening on the audio version, uh, Michael's cat here has just kind of yeah. come to join us and is a, a you know participant now. So, but yeah. yeah, I I mean, I just I thought that was interesting because there's some of the things that you had alluded to, and it, it you know I, one other question on that that I'm curious about because one of the things that surprised me the most about the transaction that you ended up doing was it, and again, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, but it didn't necessarily seem like that transaction best positioned the sales team for kind of. Continuity, or like that was the goal. It was more about the value of the portfolio and the value of the business itself, not the sales distribution. Maybe am I am I off on that, or I just am wondering? Like, is that a big driver where potential acquisition, uh you know, potential potential buyers looked at it and said the feet on the street models maybe not the most viable long term distribution that they wanted. I don't know. Maybe I'm way off base with that.
3: No, I don't think you're way off base. I mean, I, I can't comment on the global side, um, but so, I'll
1: tell you that
3: um, the the desire to get the best salespeople was absolutely there right. um, by global. Um, the desire to uh, get the, the portfolio to, to make it accreted for them quickly was absolutely there. So sure. if, if they weren't after the sales force or they weren't after the opportunity for the, the best of the best, I don't think they would have done the deal. Um, it wasn't just about getting a bunch of merchants and, and, and moving out now. What, what's come of it is, and you know, everybody can see what's going on, more, more ISOs have started. Yeah. People have left and they've gone on their own or they've gone elsewhere right. to smaller ISOs. People have choices in this business. know. Um, some always don't. Yes. Yeah. And they're adaptable. They're, they are very much like uh, chameleons. They can adapt to their environment. So right. I, I think the transaction, um, I know the transaction was was good for everybody. Um, it, whether salespeople went elsewhere, because they didn't want to work for a big company, um, you know that's going to happen anywhere. I've been through that transition half a dozen times, so I don't think you're all way off base. Um, global was after
1: um, after a couple of things, and I think that they got it in, in that yeah. transaction. I, I agree, yeah. and so it's just so. yeah, and it's like it's just big takeaway for me that I, that again the thing I found interesting about it, and even some of the comments you made was just that. I do think it's an interesting, um, almost case study on the Feed on the Street team at a national level mm-hmm. saying, you know, what is the future of that model? And I think, as I, we talked about many times on the podcast, let's just say there are challenges with that, right? Like, oh, yeah. you know, in today's market, yeah, there's challenges with everything, but I think in today's market with integrated payments and software as a service and all these other things, it, it does become it a harder. Okay, so my, my last question for you is, having just completed this this transaction, right? Um, What are some tips that you would provide uh, to that, uh, whether it's the ISO owner that's looking to sell the business or maybe they've now turned it over to a a corporate CEO to come in and scale it. But in in any case, we have an organization that's pretty large. We're looking for a buyer and we wanna get a good transaction done. What are your tips uh, for someone in that position? Listen, um,
3: every sale and every opportunity is gonna be different, James and Patty. it depends what they're after. Um, if they're after the, the sales organization and, and and they're gonna merge two organizations together, um, you're gonna focus your attention on the sales organization. I would tell you that you have to have a great command of your numbers. You have to have a complete understanding of your business. And you know there's a little thing called, all right, how much am I gonna get for my business and who's gonna pay the most for it? Right. Uh, so at the end of the day, um, I think that's gonna drive the process, the shareholders and the board are gonna say, yep, this makes a lot of sense. We had a number of other suitors uh, coming after us, but the deal structures were not um, the best economically for us. And um, in our position, we we went with the economics, understanding that the the candidate that we selected and, and, and selected us was going to be best suited to take on the sales force, manage the customer base, all the things that go along with that process. So make sure that if um, and this is one thing that Bob Bob always prided himself in, and and I I, I piggyback this. He wanted to make sure that the customers were taken care of. Right. And he wanted to make sure that the sales organization was taken care of. Um, so much so that the contractual obligations of the deal felt in line with what um, what what the organization that acquired us wanted to focus on. So at the end of the, and at the end of all this, our focus was What's attractive financially? What's attractive for those that want to make a move? And then ultimately, what's going to happen to the customers and are they going to take care of our customers long term down the road? Now, some will argue that you know big companies, they 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 don't do that, they manipulate the fees. You know, there's contracts in place to protect all that. So that's just people speculating because they may be bitter or they they felt as though the transaction shouldn't have, shouldn't have happened, but it in might. In but that's my, been going
0: on for centuries, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Being, I mean.
3: <laughs> yeah it, it's been going on forever. This, um the, the best thing that can happen, large or small is, um, you know, just make sure that the process that you have in place and the team that you have in place um, is, is ready to handle an exhaustive diligence. It's not like the deals of 10 years ago where, yeah there's a lot of diligence that went in, but you know, nowadays, whether it be a big deal or a small deal, in the scope of things, we were a small deal in comparison to some things that have happened in recently, but the diligence didn't seem small. And the team, you know, my team responded well, much smaller than obviously the, the, uh, the opposite side's team. And, and they, they focused and shifted when they needed to. So um, I, finding the right buyer is all about, one, getting the right cash um, for the deal, making sure that it's a home for your people that you're taken care of and, and how quickly they can transition customers and, and people to make it, um, make it palatable for everybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, uh, you know, obviously Michael, I know you have a lot of things going on in the industry and still have your fingers uh, in a lot of different pies, but for those that do want to maybe just connect and follow you and see what's going on in your world, where would you send them to, uh, to stay connected? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn under, um, Black Bear um, Financial
3: Advisors. Um, I, I sort of hung out my old shingle for from a consultant capacity. Sure. Um, I still am available. I've got I've got ten more months left in my non compete with Global, so I'm I'm still available with Global. Should they have any questions? Um, I thought the transition with that group was went very smoothly, especially on my side. I, I know most of them over there, having gone through the first transaction thesis. So um, you can reach me there, M um, A P Consultant at yahoo.com, uh, just my initials, consultant at consultant.yahoo.com, and, and my phone numbers uh, is on there as well. So feel free to give me a shout. If I can help in any way, would be more than happy to.
1: Awesome. All right, Michael, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank thanks you, very Michael. much, everybody.
3: Take care. Hey,
1: everybody, I'm here today with our official sponsor, Nativia, the CEO of Nativia, Vlad Sadowski. And Vlad has a special announcement for us today. So Vlad, what have you got for us?
4: Well, James, uh, um, it's this time of the year. The shows are about to begin. Uh, we wanted to start the season with some new products. Um, so we're starting to make announcements like almost um, Apple does it in twice a year. Um, <laughs> and we're officially today. We're officially releasing uh, our Nativia professional card. This is the card for payment professionals. Here it is. Nice. Anybody can get it now. It's whether you're a W2 person working for FISA or a regular ISO, or you're just a, a worker in any one of our competing competing ISOs, this is the card and account for you. Our industry's never had a card or an account specifically designed for paying professionals. So this is a professional MasterCard and we plan a, a bunch of features around it going forward specifically for paying professionals. Um, you can apply to our waitlist now and we're going to be officially releasing it right before the show season. So we will look within the next 30 days to officially start sending out.
1: Awesome. So we, I know we have the uh, link. I believe it is nativia.com slash professional. Uh, so you can head over to nativia.com slash professional. Two follow-up questions for you real quick, Vlad. Number one, I'm assuming there's some kind of rewards or cashback or something like, what's the reason why payments professionals should be using this card?
4: Yes. Yeah, so this is the highest debit Personal card on the market today. Never before a, a personal account was receiving 1% cash back on the use of the debit card. Okay. 1%, 1% cash back for anybody that's enrolls and spends until September 30th of this year. Uh, and so it's almost like a credit card, but without dealing with credit limits, bad history, good history. Everybody's accepted, everybody gets 1% cash back. And of course, we're going to roll out a bunch of features um, uh, going forward. Uh, this, the features that we're planning for that are coming soon are going to be, you're going to get your payment early, at least two, three days early uh, than your uh, regular uh, company paycheck. Uh, you will have ability to do exclusive events that we will be throwing on our, um, our shows. Everybody knows that we're famous for our parties. So now we're going to have exclusive VIP experiences for professional cards, uh, card holders, and we want to make you feel special.
1: I love it, Vlad. uh, My second question was gonna be about the uh, parties, which I know of course are coming up and how this card plays into that, but you already alluded to that. So I'm gonna give that URL one more time to make sure people remember. So head over to nativia.com slash professional. Go ahead and sign up right now to get your payment professional card. Vlad, always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for making that announcement today and we're excited to see uh, where this card goes and the, the benefits and features of it. So thanks again.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. And
1: uh, we look forward
4: to seeing every card member, at our special card member events at our parties.
2: This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by CCSalesPro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. And now here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard.
1: So, Patty, today I want to talk about the power of telemarketing in the new payments reality that we face here in the market. And I think this topic may uh, surprise people a little bit um, because, you know, historically, I mean, when I got into the business, like what now, 13, 14 years ago, um, it was, you know, telemarketing was so huge. There would be all these appointment scheduled leads and things of that nature.
0: Right, it was the the way.
1: Yeah, but I feel like the last six or seven years, especially that's really gone with the industry's really gone away from that. and it's been much more, you have had you have your online advertising, right? Right, right. But, and then you have your door-to-door, as we just talked about uh, a little bit ago with Michael Peters. Um, but I think that um, telemarketing is going to be, there's going to be a rise of telemarketing, and I'll explain why. So, as I'm sure our audience is getting a little bit tired of me saying, um, everything is going to be about, you know, sub-verticals, verticalization, and all this, right? So, I've talked about this all the time. Well, uh, what does that mean for sales distribution? Well, we just talked to Michael Peters about some of the challenges with the door-to-door sales team. And and one of the big challenges that, you know, nobody really wants to talk about too much today in our industry is that it is becoming to where if you want to compete, you do need to sell s- vertical solutions. Right. Well, that's very challenging when you are um, geographic in nature because it's like, well, I only, you know, um, I'll give an example. Mm-hmm. We, we were just talking about this uh, in my team. I had a meeting yesterday with my team that owns our self-storage management software. And we were talking about the next sub-vertical we're going to go after there. And we're, we're thinking about going after uh, mobile home parks. Okay. Oh, so
3: perfect.
1: Yeah, mobile home parks, very similar to self-storage yeah. properties. You know, you make a property map. We have to add some features like maintenance requests and you know, all of that. Right. But it's like similar. Well, when you think about that you're like, okay, well we want to go, we want to do like uh in-person distribution. Well, each agent is going to have like, I don't know, maybe 20 uh, mobile home parks in their area. Right. You know, maybe 50 if they drive a little further. You're right. But it's like, well, how many are they going to sell? I mean, out of 50, maybe they could sell 10 or 15. That would be pretty good, you know? Right. And then what do they do? So it's like they just learned everything they need to know about mobile home parks so they can make 15 sales and then they can't sell anybody else.
0: Yeah, well, that's not...
1: Right? Whereas instead, when I, you know, I'm going to hire another salesperson for my inside, you know, closers team, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to have my call center and, you know, uh, another country, you know, reach out and call every mobile home park in America and generate appointment schedule leads for my inside closer. Well, that's that makes sense in that context for that type of sub vertical. Now, there are absolutely vertical focuses that do work with in person. For instance, I have a new client consulting client I've been working with, and they go after everything auto, you know, auto repair, Mm collision centers, tire and lube, um, transmission shops, right, on and on and on. Well, in any given area, there are hundreds of those businesses out there.
0: Right.
1: And it's, you know, totally conceivable for an agent to build a portfolio of 100 plus merchant accounts just in auto. Same thing for if you're going to go after a restaurant, you're going to go after retail. But I think the challenge is going to be that it's going to be harder and harder to, go after these larger verticals versus going sub vertical and saying well mm-hmm. we have a solution mm-hmm. for pizza shops or we have a solution right. for you know food trucks and when you or, go
0: or our or country stores right? right like gas stations that are attached to country stores are different than gas stations right. that you're going to find in no. for
1: example. Yeah. And so, a- as these additional services and platforms become integrated into these software plays, um, it's just going to get harder, I think, to go like really, really niche in an area like that. So, right. I again, I agree with Michael Peters. I think there will always be a place for that feed on the street, that consultant in right. the area. But I think it's very important for those individuals, number one, to know what their strengths are and where they can compete. Right. right. right? But number two, I think they got to be staying kind of um, in the know a little bit and understanding these verticals are going after. It's like, well, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go after this vertical. Well, hold on a minute. Do you actually have a solution for that vertical that's competitive and that's going to remain competitive for the next three to five years? Um, so I think there's these question marks, and I think is uh, yeah, a lot of question so my, marks. Yeah. So my point of all that is. I think telemarketing now is really powerful. Even if you say, I think think for a lot of agents, it's like, well, I'm really good selling face-to-face. Okay, well, great. Have you ever tried selling over the phone? Have you ever tried selling on Zoom? You probably would be pretty good at that. And so if you have a certain vertical that you're really like, wow, I'm doing great going after this particular vertical. Well, why don't you try going after that vertical by having somebody, you know, either you or someone else call and generate appointments and then you do them over the phone and you sell it remote, try it out. If you can sell remote, I think that that's becoming an advantage because it allows you to go so narrow into a niche that you want to sell and go nationwide with that. And so Mm -hmm. I think the power of telemarketing. So, again, I'm not in any way saying that, hey, I, I sell my local market and that's a huge disadvantage. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that's different. And I'm saying that. Telemarketing is becoming really powerful because there are all these very specific niches that are really small, where you need to go nationwide in order to gain scale. And telemarketing is just much more suited to that type of uh, distribution channel.
2: This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com.
0: So, James, what's in your wallet? I always love that commercial, you know. Yes. And now Capital One, the ninth largest bank in the nation with nearly $470 billion in assets, is purchasing a majority interest in Discover.
1: Yeah, this is a big deal.
0: Huge deal, you know. The understatement was Richard Fairbanks, Capital One's founder and CEO, saying, "quote This is an incredible opportunity." Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, it's because you know, he said it would accelerate the company's long-standing journey to work directly with merchants to leverage its customer base, technology, and data ecosystem to drive more sales for merchants and greater uh, deals for consumers and You know, Discover issues its own cards. It has about 60, over 60, almost 61 million cardholders. It also has a very fast-growing direct savings bank, Sands Brick and Mortar. And Capital One plans to retain the Discover brand, and it's going to shift at least some of its cardholders to Discover cards and all of its debit card activity to to Discover, which, of course, owns the Pulse uh, network. Right. Now, I've been reading a lot of, you know, analyses on this. Um, A lot of people seem to think that it's going to be, um, you know, direct competition for Amex. Others think it's going to be direct competition for MasterCard. Um, I'm not sure that either of those is necessarily the case, but I do think it's a really interesting um, morphing, shall we say, of the issuance and the acquiring side of the business that we haven't necessarily seen in a lot of banks outside of, say, the Chases in the Citicorps of the world.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was interesting. Like one thing I was doing, um, earlier, I was looking at you know. So it's funny because I have three credit cards. One uh-huh. is the, and the other two are Capital One. Okay. Okay. Um, and I don't, you know, <laughs> what are you gonna do now? <laughs> well and what's interesting about that is that you know my capital one cards they are issued under mastercard right so you know so i mean there is definitely some competition there in in that way right for mastercard right so there is going to mm-hmm, be coming mm-hmm. over the discover rails um but yeah i think ultimately you know, it, it's not necessarily, it's a little bit of a surprising deal I, I in, in my mind, but as soon as I heard about it, it wasn't a deal where I was like, oh, I wonder how that's going to work. You know, you just like, well, right." I,
0: same here. I was, I was, 100%. again, I was like, whoa, hmm, that's an interesting yeah. combination. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know? I, yeah. I love it. I think it's, I think it's really good. And I, I actually do think it's, I think it's direct competition for Visa and MasterCard. I, I think that they.
0: Wholeheartedly. I think, you know, it's, I, you know especially it's when, when, when you start talking about um, A by bank.
1: Right, sure, absolutely. Now, well, yeah.
0: if you have if you have that many cards out there, you have that many uh, consumer relationships out there. Um, you're that big of a bank as Capital One is. I could see it giving Visa, Mastercard a run for their money with some sort of bank pay by bank um, solution.
1: Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, it, it it I think it just in my mind, I don't necessarily see it doing a ton for Capital One per se. No. I think. Feel- Capital One has a great brand. It's this consumer credit card. It's great. I think that's good. What it does in my mind is it really elevates the Discover brand. Exactly. Discover, exactly. When anytime you read anything, it's like Visa and MasterCard and the other card brands. And the
0: other card brands. Discover is always, and you know, I remember when Discover was first, this, you were pretty young. I'm No offense, but you were pretty young when this happened. And I remember <laughs> when it came out. And everybody's like, oh, this, this is never going to last. It's never going to be able to compete against right. Visa and MasterCard. Right. Well, James, that was almost 40 years ago. Yep. And and now it's, you know, it's not only has it successfully competed with Visa, MasterCard and Amex, I might add, I, but, but now it's, it, it has a combination that could make it even more prominent of a brand.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I actually really love it. I think, you know, it, it also, like you said, it, it doesn't give Discover a huge debit presence, but it no. does It does start to elevate that, which has always been a huge strategic weakness for Discover is that they didn't have a strong presence with, right. with the debit side. Um, so yeah, I love it. I, I think overall, I think it really elevates Discover. And I, I, I really believe that in five years, you know, it's going to be, there's Visa, MasterCard, and Discover. I think that we're going to be saying, I feel like at least MasterCard and Discover, I think we're going to be talking about them in kind of the same breath.
0: I agree. I think we're going to have those top three. You know, I think Amex has always been sort of the hoity-toity brand anyway. Right. Um right. You know, it it
1: always... Well, in, in fairness, they should... If they actually would have kept with that, I think they would have done a lot better. But I But then they tried to go down... Tried to go down market and it just yep, killed them. And that killed, them, you know, killed they, them. Because then it was like, well, then what's the point? Why would I use... You know, it's like, what's right. the point of American Express? And I think Discover... I will say one interesting thing about it from a break because to, to me so much of this is branding right I mean oh, of course right what's the what's the difference between visa mastercard and discover in the mind of the consumer I mean you know it's it's a card brand they don't understand all the payment stuff yeah. so I will say in my mind and I think most consumers would agree discover has stayed above the fray yes. and I think they are considered a friendlier brand I think it's they like are. You know, it's they discover. Are. Discover is discovery. It's where you go as a as a consumer to get a great credit card. Whereas, and it
0: has awesome rewards program.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, they do, and you don't. You know, you don't hear Dick Durbin doesn't talk disparagingly about Discover, and they no, talk about Visa and Mastercard and this duop. No, you know, so they've done a good right. job I think, of protecting that brand. I think now bringing that in with uh, with Capital One, which I I one thing I loved about the uh, the deal was, in my opinion. Capital One has a very similar branding um, experience as Discover. It's a very friendly approach. What's in your wallet? All of this. It's very friendly. Same with Discover. I kind of, you know, I I almost feel like some people would would be surprised that Capital One wasn't already owned by Discover. You know, like that kind of makes sense. And uh, so, yeah, Uh, uh, I think it's a great deal. And I I think uh, for Discover, I think it's a fantastic deal. So I'll be very interested. I
0: agree. It's a fantastic deal for Discover. But let me throw you a little curveball here. Okay. You talk about how Senator Durbin has not chastised Discover. But let us not forget, Discover is one of his constituents. Really? Discover is headquartered in in Illinois.
1: Really? I did not know that. Hey, you know, maybe the whole third network thing is a little Uh, bit more. uh...
0: Could be. I've often wondered that in the back of my mind. I mean, I don't Uh... think that he would be out there deliberately. But remember, you know, it was it was created by Sears back in the, you know, Discover sure. was launched by Sears back in the 80s. And it never really left Illinois. I think it left Chicago. Yeah. I think it's out in the, the suburbs or someplace.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, it's actually a bit of a political landmine for him, actually. Uh, you know, Discover uh-huh. gains credibility, and then all of a sudden he hands them this deal. That's uh, That's really interesting. So yeah,
2: we'll definitely be following that closely. Yeah plays out
0: as well. Yeah, so. I think we should definitely follow
2: that a little bit more closely. Yeah. Good stuff, Connie. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.